set down your sleepy water and your Mr. Whistle and crack it cold. It's time to have a real talk about pediatric dentistry. This is Bruise and Tiny Teeth. Okay, the real question is, are you going to drink a beer with me while we do this podcast? Absolutely. I thought that was part of the deal. It is, but you'd be surprised. I'm going to pop it off. You're going to be surprised how many times I do these podcasts. And then I found out my guest like does not drink. And then I feel kind of like a loser because I'm doing it by myself, but that's fine. <laughs> so join me. Um, well, thank you for, uh, thanks for coming on and doing this with me. I've been like, I've had a lot of people asking about when this conversation is going to go down and it's, oh, wow. it's, it's taken a little bit of juggling. I'm not going to say that they've been talking about it on the streets, but I think people, uh, especially at the university of Iowa have been excited to, you know, hear this conversation. So thanks for coming on and chatting with me. Appreciate it. Well, I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to it. So, um, I thought what would be funny before I kind of let you tell the audience about yourself is I wanted to tell a quick Todd Hepner story that I found out that I think you'll just like die at. You're going to really appreciate oh, this. Oh no. Okay. 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 Right. So, so for people that don't know, Todd Hepner is the pediatric dentist in Iowa who, um, who actually trained under you, Dr. Canellis, and yep. Todd was kind of my mentor. Um, and so Todd was the guy that got me into pediatric dentistry and has kind of been my sort of mentor of sorts, but I moonlighted for Todd during COVID while I was doing my startup and stuff. But Todd told me, he goes, gets this, what you're going to do. And I, honestly, I don't think the world is ready yet for Todd Hebner to be on my podcast because he's another <laughs> level of unfiltered. But okay, so I was moonlighting for Todd and I was going in the OR and he goes, gets this, what you're going to do. He's like, you're going to walk in there. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to buy cookies. And I'm like, I don't do cookies, Todd. I do fasting. I do intermittent. He's no, he goes, F that. You're going to go in, you're going to walk in, you're going to order a, a soda for everybody and you're going to order cookies and you're going to stuff them in the drawer. Like they're going to tell you you can't have food in there. You tell them to get bent. You put the food in there. You eat the cookies. That's how you get through the day. I'm like, okay, Todd. So oh, like, wow. this is his thing. He's been doing this for like 15 or 20 years, however long he's been practicing. First thing he does when he walks in, everybody that's in the room, every nurse, every dentist, every assistant, he orders them a soda and then he orders a box of like, I'm guessing gourmet cookies, but he told me at the end of every calendar year when he's doing his end of year bookkeeping, he spends between like two and three thousand dollars on pop and cookies for his OR room. My and goodness. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just like, that's if that's Todd Hebner in a nutshell, but what is? So that's impressive. I thought. That, yeah, that reminds me of when I was in private practice and my patients who were Girl Scouts would come in and to the office and ask if we would buy any Girl Scout cookies. And it disrupts the day because the receptionist has to come back and ask me. And then I have to say, of course, we can buy them. But as my practice grew and grew and grew, it got to the point where every Girl Scout in town knew that we would buy some until finally I just left a standing order with the receptionist that any Girl Scout that came in, we would order one box of every kind. And I remember a year where we had Girl Scout cookies just stacked to the ceiling, just oh hundreds and hundreds of boxes. But, you know, I never regretted it. No. And, you know, that's a, that's an interesting point that people don't talk about. But I made that mistake kind of early on, like in residency. We do our little ortho, like our Monday afternoon ortho sessions. Mm -hmm. And my 16-year-old, I'm trying to break of a thumb habit at her age or whatever I'm doing is, you know, we're sitting there chatting and she's like, oh, man, I could go for a cookie. She's like, do you like cookies? I'm like, heck, yeah, who doesn't love cookies? And then she got me with the old bait and switch. She's like, oh, would you like to buy some of my cookies <laughs> for my softball team? Like, damn it. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and it was really embarrassing and I backpedaled and I was broke at the time. So now I, in my office, I said, I, I do exactly what you do. If somebody comes in and they're selling something, just buy like, you know, 20 bucks worth or just a little bit. That way you don't have to tell everybody, no, it's a good marketing thing. And it makes the kids happy. So I mean, here, here's another idea I learned from John Schlichter, who was an orthodontist in town with me. We were classmates in dental school. I had high school band students that would come in and ask if I wanted to buy a jar of, you know, nuts that they're trying to raise money to, to purchase new band uniforms. And for every $18 jar of nuts that they sold, they got to keep $3. And John, whose father was an orthodontist, taught me, just don't mess with it. Just say, how much does a, a uniform cost? And they'd say 150 bucks and just say, I'd, I'd like to buy two uniforms. But oh, I don't. Man. I don't need all the nuts, right? Because they only get three three bucks per per jar. So 
don't forget that too, because you can oh, help help yeah. a lot just by finding out what are they trying to support and what cut do they get, and then just give them the money. Oh, that's fantastic! Honestly, yeah. yeah then it saves you having a stack of Girl Scout cookies and everything. This this is old yeah. man wisdom you're getting, dude. Tonight, this is why KT. I got you on because yeah, I, I'm right. diving deep here. So um, we're just going to keep this rolling. So uh, the big thing right now down here in you know. Um, Northeast Missouri is like the Lincoln County fairs going on. And it's a big thing down here where all these farm kids that I'm seeing that drive hours to see me, they all raise like for 4-H, they raise hogs and then, you know, they work all summer and all year and build these hogs up and then they go, you know, show the hogs and get a ribbon and auction them off. And it's a really big deal here. Well, what, what these kids do is they go around all these small businesses and they hand, you know, they write out a little note and they bring you cookies. And it's freaking adorable. Like, you know, little Samantha, who's six years old, who I did a little crown, you know, comes in and she gives you, a, you know, a thing of cupcakes. And it's like, oh, would you please, you know, this is my purebred Berkshire sow, you know, um, whatever the name is. And, you know, I personally invite you to come out, shadow and, you know, do all that. So she wants you to to buy the pig. And unfortunately, I was out of town. But I think what I'm going to do oh, next year no. is I'm going to pick one of my patients and go out, support them you know, get the face and the name of the community. And then I'll probably auction or, uh, you know, bid and buy one of them. And then yeah, yeah. kind of maybe just like split it evenly with the staff, you know, you know, my girls in the office and say, Hey, you know, this is, you know, an office promotion thing. Everybody, you know, take, you know, we'll split it into sixth or whatever and kind of give it away as like a team builder. So it's kind of a win-win, I think. Yeah. Why not? Mm -hmm. So, okay. So let's back up here for a second because, um, our, um, this podcast has is mostly pediatric dentists are kind of my listening audience, mostly 20 to 30 year olds. A lot of them are associates or, or recently out of residency or residents. And a lot of them are actually coastal California, oh, uh, wow. New York. That So we get a pretty wide listening audience. So a lot of them might not be familiar with your background sure. um, currently as the a dean at Iowa, but could you like, tell us about your private practice? I know the backstory, but like get everybody caught up with what your pedo journey looked like. Sure. I mean, I ended up in pediatric dentistry at Iowa by serendipity. I was accepted at North Carolina and North Carolina had a kid that was accepted at Iowa. And that's just something we did back then was that North Carolina and Iowa were kind of sister schools. And every year, one person from Iowa went there and vice versa. Um, but when it came to the academy meeting um, at the end of the year, he and I had a beer and then maybe another beer. And pretty soon we started talking and he was trying to pump me up about being at North Carolina because the basketball was so great. And I was trying to pump him up about being at Iowa because the wrestling was so great and he loved the mountains and I didn't. And pretty soon we realized that we had made a horrible mistake. And about 1030 at night, we went and knocked on the doors of our program directors and said, after a few too many beers, that we had made a horrible mistake and we wanted to switch. And they were both very kind and said, you guys go to bed. We'll talk to you in the morning. But they did let us switch. So I went to Iowa um, in pediatric dentistry and immediately after went into practice in Muscatine, Iowa, which is a town of about 23,000 people on the Mississippi River. And um, I don't know what you want me to tell, except that I started off in an office that was on top of a two-car garage attached to a house. So it was about 400 square feet. And I was seeing about 35 patients a day in that 400 square foot office. And after five years, finally um, got some sense and bought another office, which was 1,500 square feet. So I never had a huge physical plant operation, but I, I was there for 13 years before I came back to practice full-time. I'm sorry, to teach full-time at Iowa in 94. 1994, wow. before all of your listeners were born, I'm sure. Yeah. 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 Man, just sit and think about that. You saw, you know, now that I see 30 patients a day in my own startup here, like I, I do it out of like 3,000 square feet and I feel mm -hmm. like I got plenty of room, but I can't imagine squeezing that many kids. Like what did 400 well, square feet so, comprise of? Like what so, did you well, have? First of all, no hallways. Like I remember when I moved from 400 to 16 or 1,500 square feet, I gained a bigger, much bigger waiting room, what you need in pediatric dentistry, right? You need a big mm -hmm. waiting room. And then I gained hallways. <laughs> so, but um, there was zero wasted space in the 400 foot configuration. Um, would I want to do it again? No, but I was really conservative. I really was waiting for an academic job to open up. And um, as it turned out though, I loved it and it, and it worked. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we had a we had an open bay with two chairs, and that was it. We had an X-ray room. Uh, we had a waiting room, a reception area, a bathroom, um, a lab, pretty small. Yeah, and so you think about. 400 square feet. So tell me like your patient population in Muscatine is probably similar to where I'm at in Northeast Missouri, where high carries risk, rural, lots of thinking outside the box. Um, you know, you're not seeing, I mean, I'm just making assumptions here, but high carries no, risk right. population, right? right? So yeah, so Muscatine was unique because it had incredible industry. So people either had really good dental insurance or they were on Medicaid. And then the third group was undocumented mm-hmm. workers because of the muscatine um, at that time uh, processed um, tomatoes for Heinz ketchup. And so they had a lot of undocumented workers that lived up and down uh, on the Illinois side of the river. And so I would drive out there on Thursday nights with two nuns named Sister Irene and Sister Molly. And we would throw open the back of my Suburban and I would sit on the, on the, on the back of, of the car and do screenings while they, you know, gathered up the farm workers. They were generally uh, male farm workers between 16 and 28 years old, and they had horrendous needs. And so mm-hmm. they would triage them, keep track of them. The following Thursday night, then they would drive back out, pick them up, bring them into my office, and I would work Thursday nights until maybe 11 o'clock at night, um, just treating emergencies and spend the night in Muscatine, and then come to work the next morning. Wow. So I had, I had well-insured people. I had a lot of Medicaid and I had a lot of undocumented workers. Nice. Okay. Good blend. So were you pretty full-time? Were you working five days a week for the mo- most of your private practice career? Well, so no, um, I was working four days a week and then teaching at the college of dentistry on Wednesday and then working Saturday mornings in Iowa city. Okay. Gotcha. Um, but you know, as, as I moved to my other office, I mean, back in the good old days, right, people took Wednesdays off. Dentists didn't work on Wednesday. It was like the golf day, except that I don't golf. Uh-huh. And and that's what we did. But the dental assistants and staff started saying, why don't we take Fridays off? Because then we'd have a three-day weekend. And we tried it a couple times. And the problem was that by Thursday at 5, we were just beat. Mm-hmm. And on Monday, the number of emergencies that were coming in was just almost too much to handle. And and so everybody agreed, let's go back to taking Wednesdays off. Wednesday is such a great day to take off because it balances the whole week. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Well, I like, I think I kind of bring it up because it's nice to get perspectives of guys like you that have seen the transitions of pediatric dentistry from 30 years ago to now. And uh, this unfiltered pediatric dentistry, this is just my opinion, but it seems like we are a bit coddled as a profession now. Um, I still work five days a week next year. I might take one or two Thursdays off a month just to, you know, have some outdoor and some admin time, but it's amazing how, you know, I feel like dentists often people know this, but I think they lose perspective of what it's like to work long physical hours because that's just what the norm used to be. And I tell like my analogy is there's a lot of mornings I get up where I'm like, man, I don't know if I want to get up and fix teeth today, but I get out and I go outside and I see a guy roofing, you know, sitting on a a roof in this Missouri heat, a hundred degree day. And he's working 70 hours a week on his knees, risking his life to pound shingles all day. And I think, you know, I could be doing that instead to make a fraction well, of the money that I can okay, before lunch. So that's a little bit dramatic. Casey, it is but, a little dramatic, <laughs> but, but I get it. What, what I tend to, what I, so I'm 66 years old. And when I walk into a busy day of patients, I literally sometimes feel like, well, I always feel like I'm walking onto like a theater stage, right? The curtain opens and you have to be on mm-hmm. because to those parents and those kids, this is the most important Thing that's going to happen in their life that day and you need it to go well and you need to forget about yourself and you need to be in it for them and so every time that you do that i think as long as you make it about the patient i think you're going to be much happier um and avoid burnout i mean i hope that's the goal that everybody has yeah i think so too i think that's uh that's very wise you know avoiding burnout which i now see having done this in my own office for like a year that like, if you go too long and too hard, you know, what, what's better often for the community in general that you, you know, 
haul ass and work as much as you can for 10 years and then burn yourself out and then you yeah. quit or that you, you know, do a reasonable amount of dentistry that, but, so you can work a long, you know, long career. But let's, let's, let's back up because you hit on something. You wanted to know what it was like in practice back then. Mm-hmm. And in a small town, you are kind of the end of the line, right? I mean, if you can't take care of the patient, you could refer them to the university, to the college of dentistry. And that's a funny story I'll get to, I hope. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times your back is against the wall and you have to figure out a way. And I think you learn so much from that. Um, for example, in 1983, I remember having an 18-year-old, I'm sorry, an 18-month-old little girl in my dental chair with her mother there. And I had extracted her maxillary incisors because they had literally been decayed off at the gum line. And she was back for a follow-up appointment and she had really large occlusal caries in the upper first primary molars. So everybody who's treated a lot of patients can visualize this. The Mm -hmm. upper four incisors are gone. She has large occlusal caries in tooth number B and I. And this was before glass ionomers. So I wouldn't have done it if I had glass ionomers, but I didn't. But she was totally not able to cooperate. And this was back when insurance didn't pay for general anesthesia. And we had to do everything in the office. And so I decided, you know what? I'm going to take a stainless steel crown and just cement it over the top of these. I'm not going to remove the decay. I want the mother to have complete informed consent that when the child's older, I mean, we'll see her every six months. When she's older, we can take these off and put in a restoration. But 1980. Three, I believe it's what I said, was the very first hall crowns that I had done without knowing that it was going to become a thing. And it was, I mean, at that time, it was my dirty little secret, right? I didn't uh-huh. tell anybody, but I certainly knew the sealant literature that if you seal and decay, it's going to die. Mm-hmm. But literally, Norna Hall in the United Kingdom, that's almost exactly the same year that she started um, developing the technique and, and practicing hall crowns. So, you know, your back's against the wall. I saw this little girl every six months. You know, I I often joke that the great thing about Muscatine as a dentist is that no patient ever leaves Muscatine. So you get to see them back over and over. Right. And she she got to a cooperative age of four and I offered to take the crowns off and mom was fine with leaving them on and the x-rays looked great. And so I just kind of stuck that in the back of my head and moved on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, so... I'm not afraid to call you out now because I feel like I can call myself your peer instead of your uh, yeah. student, you know, but yeah. I will say I'm going to give you a lot of credit. I've always um, admired your ability to think outside the box and, you know, kind of push some of these, you know, there's a lot of lectures that you gave me in dental school that really stuck with me because they were effective at getting the point across, but, you know, teaching some of these alternative techniques before they were even the cool thing to do, like SDF, art techniques, hall crowns, even something as simple as the concept of you don't have to treat every single cavity that walks in well, the door. All right. You know? So that's a huge one. That's a huge one right there. Yep. And, uh, and so, you know, I just, I, I like that. It's very evident that you're not afraid to you know, think a little uh, non-traditional and think outside the box. And not only that, but in a time, you know, you are a product of a time where, you know, the Todd Hepners and the Mike Matthews and a lot of these older guys that it's the, the training at the time was definitive care, complete caries removal. And a lot of guys are not able to branch away from, from that. So it's nice that you're able to kind of think outside the box and still able to, to take care of these kids, which is really well, nice. And I, I mean, I think the training is still like that. I, I think that one of the bad things about, our curriculum, at least at Iowa, at the College of Dentistry, is that it focuses on comprehensive care, which we interpret as charting tooth by tooth every single thing that needs to be fixed and then jumping into a treatment plan to get everything fixed and and in, in real time. So if you take a two-and-a-half-year-old who's not cooperative or a three-and-a-half-year-old who's not cooperative, I would rather have people chart all the findings and then say to themselves, you know, what do we have here? What's their insurance? How far did they drive? What's their cooperation? What teeth have to be fixed now? We're going to do that. What teeth can be stabilized? Because in six months, this kid is going to be more cooperative. We're going to have a better opportunity. But yeah, some of my treatment plans, I just drag out for several years because I don't think that some of the smaller things have to be done immediately. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And you know what's yeah. what's interesting? Uh, you have a good perspective on this too, but this is what's kind of started to change 
my my approach to some of these these uh, more complex cases being more conservative was I I have a large Amish population I treat down here and I know that you see a lot of Amish kiddos too but I yes, realized I do. after after seeing enough of these kids where most of those kids don't see a dentist until they're teenagers and they start need you know permanent molars extracted and you you realize that there's a plenty of kids out there that you know have cavities on these primary teeth and you know. Uh, Maybe not every cavity is destined to have a filling, but if it, you know, worst case scenario, if it starts to abscess, it hurts, it becomes infected. Your job is to get that bad tooth out and life moves on. Maybe they have a little crowding. Maybe it's not perfect, but that, you know, I have a lot of very happy Amish families where their kids have cavities, you know? And so give me, give me some perspective about, you know, your uh, experience treating some of these Amish kids and how you approach some of these, these, you know, as you know, I know there's challenges to these kids, but reflect on that. So, I mean, we have a population of about 2,000 Old Order Amish, about 20 minutes south of Iowa City. In Kelowna, they've been there. The settlement was established in 1845, so they've been there forever. And um, by and large, they don't like fluoride. They don't drink fluoridated water, but they don't like fluoride in their toothpaste. Um, They don't have the traditional, like, Mountain Dew carries that we see sometimes. What they do have is access to a lot of carbohydrates in their diet, like frequent snacking on cookies and things. So it's kind of old garden variety curies that we saw in the 50s and 60s before before fluoride. Mm-hmm. And um, they view the baby teeth as they're going to fall out. So why do we need to fix them? So how I try to approach things is um, making sure that their primary dentition is stable. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times I will use silver diamine fluoride because they will accept that. They generally won't accept amalgam. Um, I will use a lot of hall crowns because the other thing is when they show up for an appointment, they've had to hire a driver, which costs between $35 and $75 to get up here because otherwise they have a horse and buggy that they won't bring up here. Mm-hmm. And um, they are really thinking they're not going to the dentist to find out how many cavities. They want it done that day. So if I have a family of six kids come in for recalls, my dental assistants and staff know pretty much that if there's decay, we're going to treat it that day. And it means taking care of the bad stuff, stabilizing the mediocre stuff, ignoring some of the really small stuff in the primary dentition. With yeah. the whole goal of getting them through the primary dentition without pain, without infection, uh, holding the space for the permanent teeth. But it doesn't have to be that every single tooth is perfectly restored. Sure. So uh, you'll kind of like this. So it's kind of part marketing, but part just, I want to be well known in the Amish community in case I ever need some cabinetry built or like some donuts made. Oh, you're terrible. You are horrible. Okay. Okay. But uh, it's like, I don't know. I just think I'm so fascinated by the lifestyle stuff. So what I actually did was I, I found I was having a hard time getting the message of my office being opened, you know, a farm themed office these kids would love, but none of the Amish know I'm around because I'm on Facebook and social media that they don't. Sure. See. Of course. So right. what I did was I designed a little uh, pamphlet and it's kind of a two-sided thing. It's got a little bio about me. You know, I've got family in the area. I'm a pediatric dentist. I only see kid and then kids. And then I got a list of my services. You know, I do fillings, extractions, baby tooth caps, da, 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 trauma, special needs, all this. And then mm-hmm. I put at the very bottom, you know, uh, special discounts reserved only for members of the Amish community. And then I said $80 yeah. for, wow. you know, cleaning exam, fluoride, all needed x-rays, and then 20% off cash or check discount for any restorative work. So you're going to have your door beaten down. So it, and it was, it's, it's, it's been busy. It's not as crazy as I thought, but it's been nice. So I went and took a day off work. I went around to every Amish house and little store. I passed out these flyers. And so, you know, a couple times a month, I get a new Amish family that comes in. And I think the, I think the deal, you know, you give them a deal, you give them a reason to be, to come in and it makes them more likely to come see you, which has been really nice. Yeah. So just heads up. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners know this, that at least in my experience, Amish people define their children as anybody who's still living at home. So you will get 25 year old children. So you might, you might want to be, put in age careful. Limit. I should. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there. No, cause yeah. I, I definitely see 25 year old children. Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, what's been, it's, it definitely is a good test of like all the tools in the toolbox get brought out. And the first family I had that came in, I was so 
overwhelmed and frantic. I'm just like, Oh my God, we've oh my got goodness. three, 14, 19 are shelled out and root tips. Yeah. I've got, yeah. you know, all these things. And so I just started getting frantic and I'm like, okay, I'm going to throw some SDF here, squirt some Fuji triage here, extract yeah. this one. And I found that I'd almost, it was, it was nice for them to save trips, but I, I, I've learned now to step back. I try to do half mouth at a time to save yeah. them on trips. And yeah, then you the don't other... have to be a hero. You just need to yes, you know, exactly. Right, meet exactly. them halfway. Yeah. So the other thing that I did was I made my own fee schedule for the Amish, you know, that 20% off, but mm-hmm. I put nitrous on there at like 20 bucks or something and sealants on there at like $10. So it's literally enough to co- cover the materials, but I know that they probably wouldn't do sealants anyways and it gives me an opportunity to push a little prevention and i how, how long have you been down there um not quite a year year in october right, so the the other thing you will find if it's like up here is they they will not take their kids out of school for oh. dental appointments so it's super busy right now in august but the mm-hmm. minute school starts they only go through eighth grade and they really value the education and they really are extremely reluctant to to take any kid out of school for an appointment. Okay. Yeah. I haven't seen, that's good to know. So yeah. I might as well squeeze them in while I can. Um, I have been seeing really good success with these Amish kiddos, not just, you know, I'll use SDF if I can. I'm extracting a lot of broken down permanent teeth. So I get to try out my oral surgery skills and that's fun. But there you go. I do a lot of, I do a lot of glass ionomer sealants on these kids. I do too. Um, oh, sealants, they work, okay. It works fantastic. Yeah. You know, like I, you know, I'll do a, a, a ideal, you know, resin-based sealant on a clean tooth on a kid that's brushing well, healthy enamel. But these Amish kids, there's little sticky spots everywhere. There's hyperplastic no, enamel. And yeah. the glass ionomer sealants, like, I'm so amazed. I'll squirt some Fuji triage in there, and I'll see the kid, you know, a couple months later, and it looks fantastic. Like, I love if I stuff. If I could go back to 1981 when I graduated pedo and have Fuji triage, I would be really happy. I love I love Fuji triage. It's magic. I, I have a fetish for Fuji triage. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. Yeah. yeah, and it's finally nice. The research is starting to kind of come around well, and support. I, I'm not use. huge. I'm not huge on glassianomer sealants, but a lot of people that oversell silver diamine fluoride, they tend to oversell it. I think on the occlusal surfaces of posterior teeth with open lesions, open cavities. And so I did this, um, I was involved with the silver nitrate study with Amish kids that went on for three years. It was supposed to be a two-year study. And what we found is if there's an open lesion where they're packing food, the silver nitrate, because silver diamond fluoride wasn't even on the market then, can't can't keep up with it. Mm-hmm. And so I would, in this day and age, if there's an open lesion that I can scoop or round burr a little bit of decay out of or maybe the hole's big enough to be retentive fuji triage over the top if not a hall crown is my treatment of choice um as opposed to sdf and the interproximal lesions are the ones that i would use the sdf or again a hall crown depending Mm -hmm. yeah but so many more tricks up our sleeve than what i had I mean one of my biggest regrets was that when i graduated from iowa which was a really traditional behavior management school, we were kind of taught to treat every lesion and nobody could beat us because we had the skill set and we knew what we were doing. But really quickly after I graduated, the parenting styles in the country were changing and things like firm voice control or God forbid, hand over mouth were no longer acceptable. And so we had all of those tricks and tools that worked if you knew what you were doing that weren't acceptable anymore, but you didn't yet have the glass ionomers, the hall crowns, the silver diamine fluoride. So actually what happened was after about, I don't know, seven to 10 years as the materials started to improve and you could fill your bag with other tricks, it it became really pleasant again. Mm -hmm. And so this is actually a very great time to be in pediatric dentistry because you have so many tricks up your sleeve. I think... I would love to start all over. It would be so fun. Okay. That's going to be the last. I've got a list of things that we're going to revisit this topic, you know, future pediatric dentistry. So keep some yeah. of these thoughts in mind. Well, um, but okay. Okay. One more thing then. Yes. When I came back to teach full time in 1994, I sat in on a welcome lecture from the dean of our dental school to all the incoming D1 students, the freshmen, and announced he announced that we had made so many so much progress in preventive dentistry that there would no longer be a need 
for the specialty of pediatric dentistry. That's and cool. I felt a little shiver go through my spine. And now looking back at that, I'm thinking, what the heck? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a bigger demand than ever, right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. You, they, you, for a second, you thought you were going to have to set denture teeth all day. That event. Yeah. Fun. Which, uh-huh. you know, you know that I'm the interim chair of the prosthodontic department. You're joking, right? No, I am not. I hope everyone's laughing. Um, no. So <laughs> Dr. Julie Holloway was the chair and she left and um, they don't have the position filled yet. And we had had four other DEOs retire after the pandemic. And so they came to me and asked me to be the interim chair of prosthodontics, which is like the last thing in the world a pediatric dentist would know anything about. Um, but I said, yes. And honestly, it has been eye-opening and I, I love the people so much. It's been really fun. Wow. That's cool. So that's, uh, I'm going to hop forward here. I had a question, you know, what are you up to now? Cause you know, I cut with COVID, I haven't been able to go back to the college as much as I would like, but you know, I feel like you always have a research project or something cool you're up to. And that's, that was my question, you know, what well, kind of things are you working you on? Know, you know, the really cool thing, this is very self-promoting. Okay. I want to talk, I want to talk about my book. Let's talk about it. Okay, so I graduated from Pedo in 1981 at Iowa, and I roomed with um, a friend who was a senior film major at the University of Iowa. And I had this burning idea in my head for a movie. And this was back before DNA stuff about murder detections and stuff. This was back when you had to look at somebody's dentition to determine you know, who the dead body was. So I had this murder mystery involving a dentist a dental assistant, and it was just a edge-of-your-seat thriller that I thought would be a great movie. And so my roommate encouraged me to work up on this, or to write up the screenplay, which I did. And then I took it to my dad, who was um, a columnist and a humorist and and just a good mentor. And I said, you know, hey, I really want to turn this into a screenplay. What do you think? And he said, well, I think you should turn it into a novel before it's a screenplay. And I said, well, I really can't do that. Well, he took everything I had. And three years later at Christmas one year, he gave me a present and it was the novel. So he had taken my screenplay and completely written the novel. But he had changed it from an edge of your seat thriller to a really dark comedy. So more along the lines of Fargo or A World According to Garp or something like that. And anyway, I sat on it for 35 years if you can believe that, Casey. I was a little bit disappointed, but I just sat on it. My dad died. You know, my kids grew up. And during the pandemic, I told my wife, I'm going to get this published. I have to get it published before Christmas. I want my boys to each have a copy. The book is called Novocaine, N-O-V-O-C-A-I-N-E, Novocaine. And the author is Canellis, K-A-N-E-L-L-I-S. You can buy it on Amazon either Kindle for like five bucks or paperback for like 14 bucks. And it is a murder mystery involving a dentist whose wife has destroyed his life by spending him out of house and home, a dental assistant who is a dental assistant who is running away from her abusive husband, a retired professor who is trying to escape from the nursing home and the mob. Okay. So check it out. Novocaine. Novocaine. And uh, so I thought this was a work in progress, but this is like done, go out, buy it, ready to go. It's out. Yeah. You can go on. Yeah. You might have to look. So I credited my dad with with the novel because he literally wrote it. It was story by Mike Canellis, but novel by David Canellis. So if you put in David Canellis or Novocaine, you'll find it. it has a big skull on the front cover. Oh, wow. So what did you learn about, you know, the publishing? I don't know anything about this. You know, what's it like to put a book out in the world? Well, so so I found out that you can publish, self-publish at a lot of different places. Amazon is one of the biggest. There's pros and cons, but you do get to keep a lot of the royalties for every book you publish, I think like 60 or 70 percent. So I tried to do that. But, you know, at my age with everything else I'm doing, it got a little rough. And so I started looking online for who can help me with this. And there's multiple websites, and I found one called um, Upwork.com that literally you get an account, and then you type in this frame that says, I need help with, and I wrote publishing my novel. And immediately I got a bunch of hits from all over the world saying for 20 bucks an hour or 50 bucks an hour in the United States or Bangladesh or India. So I hired a guy named Ravi in India for 20 bucks an hour and you get to set how many hours maximum you will pay. 
and two weeks later for 200 bucks, the whole thing was published. He wow. did, yeah, he did all the, all the stuff that I didn't really want to deal with. That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, uh, I will officially be uh, purchasing and I'm going to have some bedtime reading material here. So this will be, well, good. I think it's going to be over the top bizarre for you guys. Um, it plays heavily uh, into Nintendo, the early years of Mario and Luigi. Um, it plays into buffoon policemen and mob people. Um, it's really interesting. I think That's, it's very, yeah. Anyway, yeah, enough, yeah. Of, enough about that. Okay. Okay. So situation, let's say I am a 28 to 30 year old, fresh pediatric dentist. I'm getting ready to, you know, walk out of residency. I want to start a, you know, a Pete's practice in a, you know, wherever I'm from. And I come up to you and I say, you know, you have students sit in your office all the time and spill their guts. They say, Dr. Canellis, you know, I want to start this office, but I, you know, I, I can't make up my mind on if I should see Medicaid. I'm afraid at this new office that I just can't afford to see Medicaid. I'm afraid it, financially it's just not going to make sense. What do you, how do you respond to that pediatric dentist? Okay, so it's much easier talking to a pediatric dentist than a general dentist because every state has theoretically comprehensive dental Medicaid coverage for kids because of the federal EPSDT guidelines or requirements. Um, the problem is the reimbursement rate, the cancellation and no-show rates, et cetera, et cetera. But what I do try to tell them is you don't have to take everybody, but the disease that we treat in pediatric dentistry is caries. And the disease in pediatric dentistry is largely a disease of disparities. So if you stop to think that maybe 80% of the caries is in the low-income kids, then I really think people need to do their share. They don't have to take all of it. They can limit how much they take, but I really encourage them to take it. I I don't know what the reimbursement rates are in different states, but I do remember talking with a number of people explaining that if you bring your kid to me for a restorative appointment, it's probably for four sealants. And if I charge 60 bucks a sealant and you pay 100% of that, I feel really great about it. And if a Medicaid kid comes in that needs a quadrant of stainless steel crowns and you know, an occlusal on number 19 and a pulpotomy, I might bill out $600 and only get 50% of what I charged. And even if I make more per hour than I did on your kid, I'm still going to be upset about it. Mm. So I've never met a pediatric dentist that couldn't afford to see Medicaid. I've met a lot of pediatric dentists that don't like to see Medicaid, but I think if, if people want to, they, they should. I want them to, you know, mm-hmm. these are the kids that, that, that need us. There, there are very few pediatricians that wouldn't see Medicaid because kids who are sick need help. Mm-hmm. Um, I've run into a few exceptions where people just got overrun and then a community health center would open up in their community and they would decide, well, the community health center sees all these kids and they'll refer them to me if there's an OR case or a sedation case. And so I can see that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen, I've had people limit their Medicaid patients to only people from my County or only kids under the age of six or only this or only that. And the state Medicaid program in Iowa allows that. Um, but I think everybody should try to do some. Yeah, man, you stole like all my talking points. Cause I was trying to get you to give your analogy on four sealants of a, you know, in-network PPO plan right. versus a quadrant of stainless steel crowns, you know, so that's, I, I think there's a lot of merit in that, but um, dang, you stole all my good talk. And obviously we oh. like train the same institute, you know, I learned a lot from you because I literally was going to say all these same things. Um, there you go. There you I, go. I, uh, I, I think like 40% of my practice is Medicaid, which I feel is a nice, healthy blend. And I've, I certainly have all the headaches everybody else does with, I have a, you know, a lot of no shows and I do what I can, but it's just, uh, it's the name of the game, but I try to be really efficient with my time and, you know, if I, if I'm going to get in there and actually fix cavities, I try to do half mouth at a time, you know, just be a, be real efficient, lots of same day treatment, because as you know, it's hard to, you know, a lot of times these parents can't get back in or transportation issues or whatever. So it's all about being efficient with your time to be profitable, I think. So one of the, one of the most different pediatric dentistry practices I ever was familiar with was in Des Moines back in the seventies and eighties. And it was called university pediatric dentistry because they were on university Avenue, but they had four pediatric dentists working there. And 
when you went in, you this might be your operative day, like you'd have two dentists doing restorative. And when they got a kid in the chair and put him on nitrous, they did the whole mouth. Ooh. Right? I mean, yeah. as long as you could. Now, back then, that would be rough. But today, I'm thinking with all crowns and things, you know, yeah, you could do more than a quadrant. You could. And all what you're trying to do is if the kid needs the treatment, maximize the profit in the shortest amount of time. It is my Medicaid patients and my Amish patients that if they have interproximal caries and I want to do an SSC and I can do a hall crown that I'll do it at the recall appointment, right? I mentioned that, that the Amish come up with a driver that they have to pay, but the same with the Medicaid patients. If they've driven and I can get that hall crown on today, I'm going to do the exam, profi, fluoride, x-rays if they're needed, and the hall crown and maximize the treatment for them and the profit for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I, and I think that's, I think people get themselves into a pickle cause they don't, they don't, you know, they, they try to stick to the general narrative where I do my treatment plan, then I got to see him back a quadrant at a time and I got to do it all traditional. But you know, if you, if you, well, okay. Yeah. So here's a, here's kind of a funny story, kind of a tragic story. So in Muscatine, um, in my second office, 23,000 people, um, when I was getting ready to leave and to come teach full time, I had 5,000 active patients, 5,000 active patients defined as they had been in for an appointment within the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what practices are now, but that was a pretty big solo practice, I thought, for sure. at that time. And the person who took it over, I honestly had to tell them, here's the deal. Um, it got to the point where if I found carries on a kid at a at a recall appointment, I couldn't get them in for the restorative for more than 12 weeks. And the parents didn't like that. I mean, this was not okay. And I could see this going out to more than three months. And so what I did was I started doing more and people will laugh, more supervised neglect, right? So you have an eight and a half year old with carries on the distal of a first primary molar that in my traditional training, I would have you know, rolled up my sleeves and treated, but that would have mm-hmm. taken a whole appointment. And now I'm telling the parents that, hey, there's a small cavity here. It's on a baby tooth. That baby tooth's not touching any permanent teeth. Keep it clean, floss. We'll see in six months. And the parents were all fine with that. And I would document that on the record. Today, I would at the recall appointment do silver diamine fluoride. So I would have even more than just supervised neglect. But I told the person that took over the practice what I was doing. And I was really, really worried that if they stopped doing that, if they started treating every single, you know, curious lesion on a distal of a first primary molar that wasn't deep, they were going to be booked out six months. And I thought I made my point, but when they took over the practice, that's exactly what they did. And the next thing you know, they had angry parents and they didn't have a restorative appointment for four to six months. Oh man. Yeah. 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 It's, I don't know. I, it's nice to see this actually ties in really well to the the last thing I was bringing up was, you know, the direction pediatric dentistry is headed, but uh, it definitely seems, I, I have to tailor this to the guests that I'm talking to because I've had a couple guests that are, you know, that are the type that would get in there and dive in and do a DO on every BIL. And no, and I, res- I respect them. Yeah. Everybody has their training and their own personal style. And that's great. Mm-hmm. I, I do have, you want to talk about the future of this group of pediatric dentists. Yes. I'll tell you what scares me to death about retiring mm-hmm. is what to do with my adult special needs patients, right? So I have, I have patients with special healthcare needs that I have seen for 40 years, literally. I literally have them that I've seen that long that followed me from private practice up here. And there is no place to refer them except to well, I'm lucky, other pediatric dentists on the faculty at Iowa, but I think this is the group that really has the most difficult time with access because they get so attached to their providers and the families get so attached and trusting of the providers that it's scary for them too. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I I think everybody struggles and faces that in their own um, regard. I even find, you know, like I I don't have a hospital that I do my anesthesia. I, I contract an anesthesiologist to come into my office and I, I have a surgery suite. And so we do them in office, which is great, but like um, they won't see any of my down syndrome patients. So then I've got to, you know, find a hospital sure. to refer those out. So those are, you know, 
I think everybody faces that to, to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's rough. It is. Okay. So then, you know, other things, you know, I guess maybe outside of clinical, as far as, you know, the trends in pediatric dentistry is, is getting away from private practice ownership. It seems to be more. I never saw that coming. I never saw that coming and I don't get it. But yeah. 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 What do you think, you know, is it, um, if you were, let me ask you this, if you were getting out and you said you could do it again and you had all these new tools in your toolbox and you were 28, um, would you, how would you tackle, uh, the private practice world? Would you associate for a while, start up, do you join the DSO? How do you do it? Wow. So we have two to three different types of pediatric dentists graduating, right? Those that are in debt, $400,000, those who were lucky enough to have support that funded their education and those somewhere in the middle. So it would really depend on um, where you are financially and where you are with risk taking. Um, I think I personally would have just really had a rough time if I had been $400,000 in debt. I think I might have gone to the highest bidder in a place where I wanted to live, take an associateship, um, you know, get some more treatment under my belt and try to dig out of some of my debt and then, and then strike out. Having said that, I have never seen a pediatric dentist start up and fail. I don't, I don't know if anybody out there has, but it seems like the success rate, you know, whether you just rant and do it really low budget or whether you build your own building and go into debt up to a million and a half, it seems people succeed. I mean, mm-hmm. pretty, mm-hmm. pretty wildly succeed. Yeah. I, 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 I hate this corporate thing in the sense that I think what's happening is people who are in debt take that because the starting salaries are good, but I hope that then at some point they can own their own business if they want to. Some don't want that lifestyle and that's perfect. But mm-hmm. the, the amount of profit that the corporate corporations are making off of the dentists is staggering. Mm-hmm. Um, but I totally get it. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I, I like if you, uh, you had said something when I was in training that stuck with me as well. And, you know, at this little round table group discussion, and you said, you know, if you're good at what you do and you put the patients first and you do good dentistry, mm-hmm. make the parents fall in love with you. It doesn't really matter how you do the other things. You're going to be successful. You're going to make plenty right. of money. And I've, I think, I think there's an awful lot of truth, um, you know, in that. And now that I kind of kind of nerd out about a lot of the practice management side of things, and I do a lot of my own bookkeeping and marketing and watching overhead and all these things. But ultimately, you know, we have the benefit of, um, you know, I I don't know, it just keeps going back to what you said. If you keep the parents happy, give them lots of options, be a good communicator, make the kids love you. Don't take things too seriously. Think outside the box. You do all those things. Like it doesn't really matter where or how you do it. Eventually you're going to be successful. I think one more, I agree. One more tip about the Amish. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. So I give every one of my patients, my cell phone number, it's on my business card. Some people shy away from that thinking, Oh, you'll be barraged by calls. But in all my years that I've done that, you're never barraged by calls. They only call you if they need you. They don't, they don't. In fact, they're so grateful when you have them put your phone number into their cell phone. But the Amish, once they, once one person gets your cell phone number, then they will give it to somebody else who has a kid that has a problem. And what happens is they will call you on Saturday morning at seven o'clock and you will answer the phone and they'll say, is this the dentist? And you'll say, yeah, this is the dentist. I'm used to this now. Uh-huh. They say, well, I, I have a kid that uh, they don't say kid because kid means a baby goat because mm. we've a lot of dairy goat. Uh, you know, I have a, I have a child that I have a child that has a dental problem and a bit of a cavity, but you know, it's not just a small cavity. Huge, right? or they yeah. wouldn't be calling. Yep. And I really um, would like to come in. So I learned to say, are you coming in for anything else this week? Cause they have to hire a driver and they say, well, we're thinking that maybe on, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I've learned to tell them cause I don't have my schedule in front of me that I always tell them two thirty. You know, get it? Tooth hurty, uh-huh. tooth hurty, right? So that joke, because uh-huh. I remember, and the clerks in pediatric dentistry at Iowa know, they know that if an Amish kid and parent shows up, and a kid, not not a baby goat, but an Amish family shows up in pediatric dentistry saying they have an appointment at 2.30, and I've forgotten to put it on the schedule or to tell them they know it's my patient because it's 2.30. So it's kind of an inside joke, oh but it gosh. really helps me 
remember what time I told them to come in and the clerks all know it and everybody's much happier. Um, if I forget to tell them, oh, right. Fantastic. So, yeah. 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 These are the little pearls I was trying to dig out of. No, I know. I, I, I told it that we, we have huge dairy, um, goat operations in Kelowna. And I was talking to the dad about one of his children. And I said, I saw that you brought your kid, one of your kids up to Iowa or up to the college of dentistry. And he literally said, why would I do that? And I said, well, for a dental appointment and, literally he was talking goats and I was talking children. So I've learned, I've learned <laughs> you have to be careful. Yeah. yeah. You're with your verbiage. Uh, actually. So to, to celebrate kind of the end of our summer busy season with my, my staff, I've got five girls that work for me currently, but we are actually, one of my girls came up with this idea and I think it's genius. We took a day off, uh, when the, when the, you know, the rest of the kids go back to school, but the Amish kids are still out for the summer cause they go a little bit longer. Uh, right. we are going to just load up, and this is so your style. We're going to all load up in my SUV. We're going to drive up to, you know, the Bowling Green Amish, and I'm going to buy a big sack of disposable mirrors. And we're just going to go door to door, shake some hands, say hi, and just do like quick screenings looking for like obvious stuff. And then well, you know, that take- is great. And it's safe because they won't shoot you. If, right, <laughs> if right, it were not sure. Amish, I'm not sure people would want you going door to door, but yeah, they, that's funny. Yeah. I think it'll, I think it'll work well. Yeah. So I'll report back and let you know how it goes. Yeah, but I want to know. I want to know. I think it'll be eye opening because a lot of the girls that work for me don't really have a good understanding of Amish culture and how they live. So, and I think it'll be eye opening wow. for them. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of great, great, great books out about growing up Amish. Um, and I think one of them, well, the first one I read was called Growing Up Amish. And there's also one newspaper that goes to all Amish and Mennonite people worldwide who subscribe to it called The Budget. And oh. it's kind of like the Amish internet because this is a hard copy, huge newspaper. I think it's published in Canada. I subscribed to it for two years that has updates from every single Amish and Mennonite community in the world. Wow. And it also has advertisements for medical care and chiropractic care and strange things that you never knew existed. And you can learn a lot from reading that too. That's cool. Yeah. Okay. Or the budget you said. The the budget. budget. The The budget. budget. Cool. Okay. Got that down. Well, very cool. So, okay, I think we uh, we did a nice job sort of summarizing here, you know, changes in pediatric dentistry, thinking outside the box, a lot of cool stuff. Um, anybody, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, Dr. Canellis, as far as, you know, people want to pick your brain, maybe somebody's interested in doing peds at Iowa, they got a good yep. way to get in touch with you or to reach out to you? Well, so everybody's email at Iowa's pretty much the same. And it's Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L dash Canellis, K A N. E-L-L-I-S at U-I-O-W-A dot E-D-U. So just email Michael-Canellis at U-Iowa dot E-D-U. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. And, then, uh, and then everybody's got to go out, pick up that copy of Novocaine, check it out. We'll, we'll yes. Back. Yeah. yeah. This is yeah. my get, get rich quick scheme. Your retirement yeah. plan here, right? There we go. And I, if people like it, I want to hear about it because it's over the top. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. I'm excited to check it out. Well, hey, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. And if if I don't know, I I love these kind of conversations. So if you uh, if you're in the mood, maybe we can do it again sometime because I think people I will really do like it a hundred times more. Absolutely. Perfect. Thank good. you for inviting me. No problem. Have a good night. We'll talk to you later. Okay. All right. Good night. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Bruise and Tiny Teeth podcast. Don't forget to submit any questions, comments, or tough clinical situations to cgets at troypediatricdentist.com for our next Pedo Pearls Power Hour. Also, be sure to share our podcast and leave a review. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week for another episode.